Well, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. If you're using a pew Bible, that should be on page 1022. 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 through 29. And I invite you, after you've made your way there, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse number 26. Hear now God's word. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, as uh, my time up here is once a month, and rotating with morning and evening services, I expect you to know exactly where we were last time a month ago during an evening service. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I want to remind you uh, where we have been so far in 1 John. Uh, we've come, really, if you split it in the middle, we're kind of right in the middle of 1 John as it's five chapters. We're closing out chapter 2. Uh, we'll be, Lord willing, in chapter 3 time together. But John has really moved at an interesting pace. He has uh, weaved together multiple ideas of why he's writing to this congregation or collection of congregations, what he wants them to be assured of, what he wants them to be aware of. And over the last couple times we were together, we have entered into a dialogue that John has with his audience about these false teachers. This is really the heart of the matter when it comes to 1 John because everything that he sets up in chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, is getting to this. And then everything he'll go on to say in chapter 3 and following is in response to this or a reflection from what he's saying here. So we're really right at the, the crux of the matter, as it were, in 1 John. If you do remember where we were at last time, you'll remember that we've already gone through verses 26 and 27. Uh, but what I wanted to do this morning, focusing our attention primarily on 28 and 29, I wanted to show you how 26 and 27 folds into 28 and 29. There's an interesting thing that John is doing here as he's preparing us to think about uh, the reality of our spiritual adoption. That's the theme that goes into chapter 3. But in order to appreciate that, in order to know what that means for us, in order to know what that means for us as we consider our lives as Christians, as we go out from here, we have to appreciate what John is saying right here 
and how he builds this idea in verses 26 through 29. And, and that idea, that big idea that John has for us is these two realities. It's really two roads that he's painting for us here. And they come with this uh, reflection that abiding in God produces confidence while abiding in deception produces shame. Abiding in God produces confidence. Abiding in deception produces shame. And we'll see that really by splitting this into two considerations. First, we'll look at 6 and 27. And I want you to see this as what I'm calling the treachery of deception. The treachery of deception. John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Now, we've already learned about this group. He's introduced them to us in chapter 2. He's called them um, false teachers, but more explicitly, he's referred to them as antichrists. You remember what John does uh, in chapter 2. He, he tells us what is true of our fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, he doubles down on what is true of us uh, uniquely as Christians that is not true of the rest of the world. He gives a good amount of warning in chapter 2 about what it means to love the world and all the things in the world. He paints a picture of what a worldly person would look like, and then he pans the camera right at these false teachers as if to say, that's what they're like. That's what their ministry is built on. That's what their hope is in. And do not be like them because you are different from them. So he's told us a few things about these who are trying to deceive. And he has several things in mind, but if I give you three things to remember, three words that start with the letter D, maybe that will help make it stick. Here in chapter 2, we first learned that they were defectors. John says that you must abide in God, but here's the thing about these false teachers. They did not remain, same word as abide, they did not abide with us. What's true of them, what sets them apart from us is that they were defectors. They did not abide with us, but they went out their own way. And John says, there's your first test case to know that they weren't truly one of us. They were with us, but they weren't truly one of us because they went out their own way. They were defectors. We could think of this in a way that they were a Catholic, a negation. They were not Catholic. Now, we think of people who maybe defect or go somewhere else, uh, and we think of it within the bounds of orthodoxy. What we don't have here is an instance where these people, these teachers, you know, they had biblical convictions, and they began to see that among the congregation they were a part of, those biblical convictions weren't matching up. So they decided they were going to go out and join another community, another fellowship, because they cared so much about the word of God. Now, that is not what's taking place here. Of course, we would commend, we would be sad for anyone to leave, but we would commend somebody that facing after their biblical convictions within the bounds of orthodoxy. The Lord's church is larger than the Presbyterian church, of course. That's not what these people were doing. They were going out distorting the word of God. They were leaving, not uh, in good graces, but they were leaving by causing controversy. They were causing disunity. They were being orderly among God's people, and they were going out their own way. They were defectors. 
but there were also deniers. They were defectors because they went out from God's people, but they were also deniers. And John says that they were deniers in the sense that they were embracing and teaching damnable heresy. John puts it very bluntly when he says that they were denying the Son, and in so doing, they were denying the Father, who had sent the Son. He takes it a step further and says, the difference between them and you is that you have received an anointing. You have received the Holy Spirit. They, on the other hand, are anti-Christ. Anti-Christ, the word for anointing, they are those who are not anointed. They are those who are against the Lord and his anointed. They were deniers. They defected from the flock. They denied central truths of Christianity. It's not those you know, open-handed issues that we can agree to disagree on. These are closed-handed issues. These are um, most important things that distinguish us between Christian and non-Christian. We know of many people like this, don't we? Uh, perhaps you've experienced this kind of person in your family, maybe somebody in your workplace, somebody in your neighborhood. We understand what it is like for somebody to be, visibly speaking, a part of God's people, to hear the truth of God's word, and then to go out their own way, to embrace the world, to embrace uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, the things that John warned us about previously. And the thing about this kind of person, this kind of defector and denier, is that it doesn't often happen in a vacuum. It is not often the case that they go their own way and close the door behind them. Rather, what happens is they become zealous for their cause. They become hungry for their own converts. That's precisely what's happening here with these false teachers. They were defectors, they were deniers, and now we come to what John says about them in verse 26. They were and are deceivers. They defected, they left the flock of God, they denied crucial matters of the faith, but in so doing, they aim at deceiving others and winning them to their own cause. One of the things that John wants us to understand about this group of people comes to us in verse 27. How is it that they deceive? What is their goal? What is their intention in deceiving the people of God? They're trying to do it, John says in verse 26. If you have a King James, they're trying to seduce. The same idea. Well, John doesn't go into details. He's already kind of hinted at it. They've embraced a theology. Now, the thing is, they're, they're still considering themselves Christians in all this. They're teaching the, the real matters of God, novel ideas, and they're doing so in a way that, that allows them to have the cake of the world and eat the cake of the world, too. Uh, they've embraced all of these things. But beyond that, we don't know all of the specifics, but in verse 27, John paints a picture by way of contrast. That's what I want you to, to see here in verse 27. See this in an interesting bookend that John does. Look at the beginning of verse 27. The anointing that you received from him abides in you. And then at the end of the verse, just as the anointing, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So it's a reciprocated reality here of abiding. 
God himself abides with you by the Holy Spirit. You've received the anointing, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And because that is true of you, your response should be to abide in him. It's this mutual fellowship and relation. God abides with us. We're called to abide with him. James says, draw near the Lord. He'll draw near to you. It's this idea of fellowship, of agreement, of not fighting against the things of God. Now, how is it that the Holy Spirit abides with us? What does that look like? Well, he tells us. He says, first, a negative. You have no need that anyone should teach you. Why, we might ask. Because, or but, as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. An interesting way to put it, uh, certainly, as, as John unpacks this idea, we might want to look back because if we're wondering what does he mean that we have no need that anyone should teach us, uh, we might want to simply look back at verse 20. I'll read that for us. We looked at it a couple uh, a couple times ago, I guess a couple months ago now. Uh, he says, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge, or you all know everything, or you know all things. And what we said there was that the Holy Spirit comes as our anointing that we receive, and he teaches things that we must know. He teaches us as the spirit of truth what is true. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person knows everything there is to know about Christianity or about theology, uh, but it's the matters pertaining to salvation. Uh, we don't have to have a PhD. We don't have to have all of these things to know the matters of faith. God unpacks it plainly and clearly in his word, and we receive the truth of his word by the Holy Spirit. And in this sense, we know all things. We have all things in Christ. We belong to him. Now, look back to verse 27, and John is simply expanding on that idea. You have no need that anyone should teach you. Uh, there's a lot of cultural Christianity that would perhaps make this their life verse. Um, I have my Bible, I have my Jesus, and I don't need anything else. It's the so-called Lone Ranger Christianity. It's the kind of Christianity that scoffs at any kind of formal education of the faith. It's the kind that scoffs at anyone else telling them what the Bible means. And the idea is, my own experience is the authority. Uh, whatever is true about God is true because that's what I believe. And it's this distancing themselves from everyone else and believing that they alone are wise. Well, that's not what John is advocating for here. He's not saying you have no need that anyone should teach you as if to say, you can kind of go in your own corner and do your own version of Christianity. Ironically, John is saying the exact opposite of that. That's what the false teachers were doing, after all. These false teachers were so because they were teaching things that were antithetical to the Spirit of God. Notice John calls the Spirit of God, uh, he who is true and is no lie. Uh, Jesus said that he was sending the Spirit of truth. And this is an important distinctive for us to understand because when we consider what false teaching is, what is false teaching after all? Well, it's novel. It's revolutionary. It's something new. It's the deep things of God. 
And that's what these false teachers were advocating for. Remember, they, they defected. They went out and found their own corner, me and my Bible. But they were lonely after a while, and they needed converts. They needed to be heard. They needed to, you know, get their ego going so that they can embrace all the things of the world they love, such as the glory that comes from man. They were saying, this is the real Christianity. Here's John left in the past, his archaic apostle, so-called. We have the real truth of God. You need to listen to us. What John is saying is, you have no need for a teacher like that. That's not what you need. And the reason that you have no need of that is because you've already tasted what it is to have the spirit of truth abiding with you. What is it that marks the uniqueness, but also the verifiability of the true work of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's that the work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is, of course, as comforter. We talked about that in our adult Sunday school class this morning, but also as teacher. And the Spirit does not come to teach novel things. The Spirit comes to testify of the things that Christ himself taught. And Christ himself, as he taught, his teaching was verified all over the place in the Gospels by fulfillments of the Old Testament. John himself, the other apostles, as they teach, they don't say, here's my revolutionary new teaching, but they cite the Old Testament or they cite Christ himself from the Gospels and say, we're not doing a novel idea here. We're simply reiterating and establishing ourselves within the bounds of orthodoxy. The Spirit comes not to teach new and revolutionary things, but to verify, to unpack the riches of what Christ himself taught. That was the gift that Jesus was giving and promising his disciples. I'm about to go, but I'm going to send another comforter. And the whole idea there is that the Holy Spirit is not going to come and do his own thing all of a sudden. The whole reason that Jesus can give them that comfort is because it is the Spirit of Christ himself who will remain with them. So it's a doubling down. It's a reinforcement. It's a maintaining of the one faith given and delivered to us. John is saying, you know what is true. You can verify all that I've taught you. You can verify what the other apostles are saying. You can trace us back to what Jesus says because that's who we're speaking on behalf of. We're not speaking on behalf of ourselves. You don't have a need of a teacher who's going to go out and do something brand new, something that has no correspondence to the faith that Jesus Christ has given. If you know that's true, then you understand the tricks of deception. You understand the treachery of it. You understand why you must flee from that, why you must not embrace that. And that's why John says, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Dive in, remain in, abide in what you know. Do not branch out into the subtleties of new and novel ideas. That is the spirit of these antichrists as they teach and seek to deceive the people of God. Well, that was the treachery of deception. John has given us a, a framework now for understanding how is it that they deceive. Well, they subtly try to put a new spin on the things of God well, if that's true, then we must also understand what we see in verses 28 and 29 as the tragedy of shame. The sermon titled Deception and Shame, we've considered the treachery of deception. We'll now consider the tragedy of shame. 
Let me read verse 28 for us again. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There's an interesting dynamic happening. I want you to notice in, in, in terms of time, notice what John says at the beginning of verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when. So there's a present and now abide and a future anticipation so that when. What John is saying is this Christian life is a call to present, ongoing, perpetual, abiding with God. But that's not even the end game. It's not even about just do the stuff, do the thing that makes Christianity Christianity. It's also having eyes of faith to look to where this is going. This is going somewhere. Where is it going? Well, John says it this way. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You know, there's a lot of people who, uh, textual critics, if you read commentaries, if you read um, popular kind of secular analysis of books like this, uh, assuming that they even believe that John wrote this letter himself, uh, they would say something like this, that, you know, when John talks about whenever he appears and his coming, you know, John doesn't really give details of what he means there. And it's just been the Christians after the fact of this being written that they've kind of read into that, these apocalyptic catastrophic events. In other words, John doesn't really mean anything kind of, you know, out there somewhere, reality that's coming toward us. He just simply means Jesus dwelling with his church or something vague or something uh, nonspecific. And so we might ask, well, what does he mean? Because when you hear the phrase, when he appears or at his coming, you, you have a whole view, you have a whole paradigm in your mind that you're reading into those phrases, but what does he actually mean by that? How does he define those things? And many arguments say something like, well, he doesn't, so we shouldn't either. But it doesn't take much detective work to understand what John is getting at. Let's just focus in on one word, when he appears, we may have confidence. Now, what does he mean by him appearing? Well, we could ask the question, what does he mean by confidence? And to see what he means by confidence, let me just point your attention to verse 17 of chapter 4. Here's what it says. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, that's pretty easy way to just verify what John's talking about. How does he use that word or similar words elsewhere in the letter? There's all kinds of uh, arguments to just say, just, you know, dismiss all the big ideas of final judgment or anything like that. And all we have to do is look, you know, just a couple chapters down the road and we understand what John is getting at. What John has in mind when he appears at his coming is the future expectation of Jesus Christ's second coming, a final judgment. John wants them not to forget that. 
It's unclear exactly what these false teachers were advocating for. At best, they were blunting edges of the final judgment. They were advocating for a certain kind of life that would have no kind of consequence for the final judgment. At worst, they were outright denying it altogether. If you want to look at an interesting parallel, I, I just noticed this this week. Uh, I would commend to you to just read Second Peter this afternoon or sometime this upcoming week. It is uncanny how much overlap there is with Second Peter and this very text that we're dealing with this morning in First John. There were all kinds of false teachers during the days of the apostles who were saying, the final judgment hasn't happened yet, therefore there will be no final judgment. We might ask, what would life look like if there was no expectation of a final judgment? What would your life look like if there was no expectation of a final judgment? You believe Jesus Christ, he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that's just kind of the end, and everything just kind of goes on from there. If you believe that, what would your life look like? Well, it would look like what John warns us of back in verses 15 through 17, not to love the world, not to embrace these things. And the reason is because it's passing away. Again, it's going somewhere. And that's John's idea. We think of this expectation of Jesus' second coming. It reverts back to an expectation and a realization of his first coming. Now, I'll remind you what these antichrists were doing is that they were denying that. They were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. There was no real incarnation. It was just, you know, an appearing, a, a, some kind of visible manifestation of God. But beyond that, nothing to see here move along. But dear Christian, we confess that Jesus Christ came. He entered into human history. And that establishes not only what he came to do in seeking to save the lost, but it also points us forward to where this is all going. The Old Testament prophesied and expected Jesus to come, but in his work of grace and salvation, there's also an expectation of glory. Jesus says he would return, he would come back. And if you don't believe he ever came in the first place, you certainly aren't going to believe that he'll come again. Hint, these, these false teachers were doing this very thing. But John is saying we embrace the Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. Uh, not just a vague message about a spiritual reality of a person who never existed, but the Son of God himself who came and dwelt among us. That's who we've got all of this from. We're getting all of it from him. We've not invented this ourselves. And Peter says we've not, you know, gone after cleverly devised myths. We haven't put our own spin on scripture. We're testifying to what he has taught us. We're living in light of who he is. We're living in light of an expectation that he will return. It's going somewhere. It's moving somewhere. And John says the two realities of that expectation of Christ's return, when he appears, when he comes in judgment, there's one of two roads. It's the road of confidence 
for the road of shame. When he appears, he wants his people, he wants the ones he's speaking to, to have confidence. Because if they don't, they will shrink back from him in shame. Now, when we think about this, we have to consider that those who claim to be Christians are not off the hook. It's easy to read this and say, well, of course, the expectation of, of shame is, is what's going to happen to the But I want you to notice the, the nuance of what John is saying. John is warning them, the ones who are being deceived or the ones that these deceivers are trying to deceive, he's warning them that to embrace the false teaching, to go down that road, will result in the same outcome of shame. This is something for us to consider because we often think, well, I'm not a false teacher, so I'm good. But are you being deceived? This outcome of shame is both for the one who deceives and the one who is deceived. There's an expectation of judgment, not only for the one who tickles the ear, but the one who has their ears tickled. It's a warning. John doesn't believe that his people have actually bought into this. But he can't take any chances. He must warn them. And the safe haven is not simply that we're here, physically, at a church. The safe haven is that we are abiding with him. We are embracing the true God. We're embracing the one who is truth, who is no lie. The one who is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Deception is tricky because we don't often know, in fact, I'll argue we'll never know, that we are being deceived because it's self-evident by the name. If you are deceived, would you know that you're being deceived? Probably not because you're being deceived. I hope you understand. What does John mean by deceived, after all? Let me just read this very quickly. If we go back to a little ways back, at least, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, we trick ourselves, we seduce ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We might say in simple terms, what deceivers try to do is blunt the edges of sin or simply get out an eraser and remove it altogether. You can know that false teaching is so because it seeks to remove things that God has clearly said and revealed to us. You can understand the game that is played. You can understand the tricks. You can understand the deception. And friends, don't we see this in our culture everywhere? It's pervasive. It's appalling to call evil good and good evil. 
to have so many versions of Christianity, so many so-called varieties, that you can find one where sin is almost not even a thing. Sin is not even a reality. Or at least the soft version where sins are just mistakes. Sins are just shortcomings, but I have to digress from such rabbit trails as that. But it's a real and present threat among God's people. So what do we do with this? Where do we look? I've used this analogy before, but my Hebrew professor always tells us when we're dealing with translation exercises on our quizzes, and you're looking at Hebrew and you're remembering, okay, read from right to left, not left to right, and word order is different, and he always says, go with what you know first. Start looking for things that you recognize and then put it together. This is what John is saying to us in verse 29. Go with what you know, dear Christian. How do you know that you're being deceived or not? How do you know what to look for? How do you know who to look to? And this is his advice for us. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. There's a lot there. But he says, look to Jesus Christ. We are Christians. It's in our name that we belong to Christ, that we live according to the pattern that he has given us, that we have a high view of Scripture according to the example that he has shown us, that we have a seriousness about the expectation of a final judgment because, after all, Jesus Christ spoke of that almost more than anyone, arguably anyone in the entire New Testament. He speaks about eternal punishment and all the rest. Look to him. Don't look to a false teacher. Don't look to somebody here in the world that just seems to have it all together and just always knows the right thing to say. Everyone here is feet of clay. Look to who our Savior is. Look to him. Look to Jesus Christ. And what do we know about him? We know that he is righteous. There's no deceit on his lips. He is truth. Look to him. Look to his righteousness. That's what John has already told us. His righteousness given to us. Him taking our sin upon himself. Him satisfying the wrath of God as a propitiation. Look to him. You can't go wrong, dear friend, looking to him. We can go all kinds of wrong looking to others. He establishes the model of righteousness. And if you know that he is righteous, you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Friend, do you walk as Jesus walked? Do you know how he walked? Do you read the word of God that reveals that to you? Do you listen to the apostles that he's raised up and he's given his Holy Spirit to, to write these inspired words of scripture to help us along the Christian walk? Do you follow the pattern of sound words? Or do you make it up as you go along? 
do you define what sin is and what sin is not? Dear friends, if we do that, we're being deceived. We're deceiving ourselves. There's good news at the end of this verse. It's not just, he did this, therefore we do this also. He's righteous, look at his model, try to follow it. That's not our own effort. There's a spiritual reality. There's a regeneration that happens for us, dear friend. And that is this, being born of him. The sad thing about our culture is that it believes that salvation is simply by death. You're born into this life. We're all sinners. We're all condemned. But So just try to live the best life you can. And you'll be saved simply by the fact that you have died. There's just this assumption that it's going to be better for everyone who leaves this earth simply because they've left this earth. And therefore, anyone who's been born will surely be saved. But Jesus says, it's not whether you've been born. We've all been born. It's whether you've been born again. That's what he tells Nicodemus. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Clearly, John was paying attention because he's doubling down on what he heard when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus. That rebirth is the regeneration by the Spirit, the one who's anointed us. He's bringing us back to that fellowship and communion, that reality, what is true for us, what sets us apart from the rest of the world, what our hope is, not in our efforts, but in the one who abides with us, who teaches us, who testifies to all that Jesus did and all that he said, that we would live and walk in that very same way. That's where your confidence is, dear Christian. That's where it must be. It cannot be anywhere else. We've looked at the trees of the forest here. But as as we close, let let me just zoom out for just a couple minutes. and, and, And let me show you the forest itself. We consider the novelty of false teaching. We consider the the fruit that comes with it, deception and shame at the last day. Novel, new, revolutionary ideas on the one hand, but in another way of considering it, it's the same tricks over and over again. I want you to look back at verse 26, and let me paint for you a scene it's a familiar scene. It takes place in a garden. You open up to Genesis 3. And what you have in Genesis 3 is one who comes in subtly and seeks to deceive. He's been banished. He's been cast out. But he, like these false teachers, wasn't willing to close the door behind him. He wants to have his own converts. He wants to win people to his cause. And so what does he do? He seeks to deceive the man in the garden. He seeks to deceive Adam and his wife Eve. There's the one who tries to deceive. Look with me at verse 27. You know, Adam was given a command by God. He had the word of God. His responsibility was to abide and to double down on the truth and sufficiency of what God has said. He had no need that anyone should come and teach him. But this deceiver comes in and seeks to teach him new and novel ideas. He blunts the edges of sin. 
he questions that expectation of judgment that God warned against. The day that you eat of this fruit, you'll surely die. This deceiver comes in and says, that's not true. Sin is not as so bad as you think it is. In fact, it will make you more like God in the process. And then finally, look with me at verse 28. We know what happens. We never read Genesis 3 wondering what's going to happen this time around when we read it. We know what's going to happen. And what happens is they eat the fruit. God comes. And what happens? They shrink back in shame. The man and the woman who were created and who were one, who had no shame, suddenly enter into this reality of shame. It's the same trickery, friends. It's the same deception. It's the same red flags. And if we're not aware of them, we will be deceived in the process. The good news, dear Christian, is that Jesus Christ comes to take away your shame. Jesus Christ comes to bear our shame. He takes it away from us. He gives us profound confidence because that profound confidence is not found in one who is hiding from the presence of God, but who is outwardly, visibly, in front of everyone, receiving that commendation from his heavenly Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That status, that fellowship, that confidence is yours, Christian, in Jesus Christ. And the same Jesus Christ who takes our shame is the same Jesus Christ who is not ashamed to call you and I brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's pray.